the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Weekday evenings on FM 101.5 and AM 1400, The Patriot. It's 6 o'clock talk with Daryl Wood. Host Daryl Wood brings you the day's news and trending topics as only he can with a unique blend of conservative opinion, constitutionalism, and thought-provoking analysis. Join the conversation. 6 o'clock talk with Daryl Wood. A daily look at the news in a way you won't hear anywhere else. Tune in to 6 o'clock talk with Daryl Wood on FM 101.5 and AM 1400, The Patriot. Or stream at PatriotDetroit.com. You are in, in what part of the country? <laughs> Southwest Colorado. Wonderful. How are you picking us up? Oh, I stream you guys on my uh, iPhone every day. Fantastic. Um, I, I am a resident of Sterling Heights, but uh, I frequently come to Southwest Colorado. I am just thrilled to be hearing from you out there in Colorado. Continue to listen, tune in again, and call at your earliest convenience. Godspeed. Run to Win with Daryl Wood, Monday through Friday at 4 p.m. on Faith Talk Detroit. The following program is sponsored by Next Steps for Seniors Foundation. This is Next Steps for Seniors with your host, Wendy Jones. Each week, Wendy brings resources and information to help guide you through those next steps for your elderly parent or loved one. Now, here's Wendy Jones with this week's guest. Good morning, and welcome to Next Steps for Seniors. I'm Wendy Jones, as you all know, and I'm the host of Next Steps for Seniors radio program. Each and every week, we really do our best to bring information that's pertinent, sometimes a little different, but that relates to all of us as we age. And Next Steps for Seniors, the business, really helps people walk through that process. But the reason we're doing this program today is really to share resources, to share information, And last year, I'm sure everybody remembers Pastor Tim, once a month we did uh, Love Over All was our topic. And that was because we really felt like we needed that. Well, guess what? We're changing gears this year. And every month this year, one time in the month, we are going to do Senior Stories. That's, That's kind of like our topic today is Senior Stories. And I met a fascinating man recently. And his name is Paul Van Tol. Good morning, Paul. Good morning. He's right here in the studio with me. And we ended up having just an excellent conversation about history and about his family and, and his parents. So I want I invited him today to share with you listeners. And I want to encourage you, if you've got a story, a special story that you think somebody needs to hear, please call my office because I would love to have you on the radio. Like I said, once a month, so there's only 12 of you, (laughs) but please call the office because this is a time where we kind of go back in history and we really dive into like what's made us who we are today. Uh, The phone number at the office is 248-651-5010. So Paul, when we first met, I didn't know you were a history major, but I think I find that interesting. 
So you majored in history. I majored in history in uh, college, yes. Okay. So you were, you're, you're a businessman too. Retired, I am, yeah. But, I'm yes. a retired business person, yes. Yes. Um, so you've always kind of been fascinated maybe with history. In, Absolutely. In the past. And I just recently uh, joined the board of the Detroit Historical Society. So A perfect spot for you. Right. I love it. So tell me how this all kind of started way back when. So my mother died uh, in 2013 at the age of 93. And when we went through her things, I inherited a huge box of uh, letters, which my parents had written to each other during World War II principally. And although initially when I looked at them, I didn't find them that interesting. The pandemic gave me an opportunity to start going through them in depth. Just and a little more time you had at home maybe to do something like all of us did. Exactly. And as I read the letters in random order, an amazing picture began to emerge. I methodically and uh, slowly began to summarize and synthesize the letters into a proper time sequence. And so gradually as I did that, the picture uh, the, uh, emerged of, of my parents' relationship but also of the history that was going on at the time. It's fascinating to me. It is just fascinating to me. And really, you know, as you were cleaning out your mother's things, you said, because your father had passed. My father died at quite a a young age, yes, um, when my mother was 60. And my mother lived to be 93, so she was a widow for 33 years. Wow. And celebrated her anniversary every year faithfully. God bless her. That's amazing. 93 is a a long time to live, too. It is, yes. Okay, so tell us a little bit about what you found in these letters. Well, so my parents both lived through the Great Depression. They both grew up on farms in northwest Iowa in largely a Dutch community. Um, Both of them spoke Dutch. uh, And so um, as I went through the letters, uh, it was uh, interesting to to see how they um, interacted. And I actually summarized all these letters, and it turned out to be some 80 pages of summary. And and, uh, so I actually decided that I had to give it a title. So I called it Love Everlasting, the story of Hubert Nevelyn Van Tool. Oh, my gosh, is that fascinating. Now, I just have to say this because it's making me think of it. Nowadays, no more letters. All we do is text and email. So I love that you have this history and that they've lasted this long. Yeah, that's exactly correct. And um, so I want to read a little bit of what I wrote down here in response to what you just said. Um, Again, these were written letters that I could put my hands on. And I wrote, what of uh, our parents or stories of anyone will our children or grandchildren be able to access in the future? Text messages? And what will be left of those types of writings when we have the ability to quickly delete them forever? Messages never to be preserved. So, again, we live in a different age. We don't have letters being written um, almost ever. So this is really interesting, and and it was uh, something that I thought was important. I almost feel like we all need to get back to the basics, don't you? It would be interesting. There's something to be said for it. Yeah. You know, and, and your father was in the Army, correct? My father got drafted into the Army at quite an old age. Uh, again, both parents grew up in the Depression. Uh, my father, my father's family, and my father grew up without his mother, who died at a young age of cancer. Uh, my father had to drop out of high school uh, almost before he started to work on the farm to help um, 
with his family. Um, ultimately went back to high school at the age of 23, believe it or not, and finished high school uh, in like one and a half or two years. Wow. So he grew up quite poor. And uh, again, when I would go visit my grandfather's farm in Iowa, my uncle would point out to me the fact that my father had built all of these all of these buildings uh, on around the farm uh, by hand, with hand tools, not power tools back in the 30s, obviously. Um, other interesting things, uh, harvesting corn. We know that corn is harvested with huge machinery. My father described to me one time that when he was growing up, they had to harvest corn by hand, believe it or not. He used a glove that had a, a leather glove that had a hook embedded in it, like a like a sharp curved claw. And the horses or mules would pull the wagon down the rows, and the wagon had what was called a bang board, B-A-N-G board. So as he went down the row, he would strip the ear of corn, take take the uh, uh, leaves off of it, and throw it over his shoulder against the bang board. That was way so they did not have to look where they were throwing the corn. But they literally harvested corn like that. And at that time, believe it or not, I read a story that there were some 250,000 people uh, in the Midwest who attended a corn shucking uh, competition of people who were harvesting this corn just in do. this manner. And they've probably gotten so good at it, they can actually create a competition for it. Apparently. <laughs> oh, gosh. That is fascinating. Oh, wow. Okay, so tell us, like, when you start, when you first started getting these letters, like you said, you kind of put it into some type of order. Yes. So are you going to kind of start from the beginning, like well, what you saw first? I mean, so your parents were married or not married when they first they were, started writing They were not married. They, they actually got married... Um, when my father had been in the service for a while. Um, and just to back up, so my parents both were born in Northwest Iowa, but my mother's family, uh, when my mother was 13 years old, um, I had her, her father, my grandfather, was somewhat of a contrarian. And everyone out was going west for work or whatever. Um, they lost the farm they were in uh, because mm -hmm. they couldn't pay the mortgage. And they, my, my grandfather decided that he was going to move to the east because he heard that there were jobs out east. Well, he um, ultimately wound up buying a farm in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, which is northwest of Philadelphia. It's a fairly uh, wealthy area today, but he bought an 80-acre farm there, which, by the way, um, it was a, a fairly close distance to uh, Pearl Buck, who is a famous author who wrote The Good Earth about China, and uh, uh, she lived down the road. And so my grandfather actually met John Steinbeck at one time, uh, who was visiting Pearl Buck. Um, but anyway, wow. so my mother, so interesting. mother at the age of 13 with all of her siblings got loaded into a huge old truck, which my grandfather, uh, it was a panel truck. My grandfather cut holes in the side of the panel truck for a window and all of their possessions, and they drove the long way to uh, Bucks County, Pennsylvania. So she grew up there. Ultimately, my mother, who was seven years younger than my father, she went back one time to visit her grandmother with her mother, and that was when she met my father, who was still living in northwest Iowa, and a romance blossomed. And so... 
And they the letters, dated for- letters start with his very romantic letters to my mother. Uh, and my father was a prolific writer. He wrote uh, in the army, he wrote almost every day. Oh, gosh. And I do feel like more people write. I mean, I think in the army, I do believe that's the best you know, way to write, at least in basic training when they can't have their phones. I know this for a fact. Yes, yes. <laughs> so they write letters every day. Right. But then once you get the cell phone, it's like you can just call them every night. Exactly. <laughs> so exactly. we've lost, like you said, this art, yeah. which really is an art. So we've only got 35 seconds left in this. Uh, so we're going to, we're, we're all sitting at our edge of our seats because I want to hear the first letter. But let's, um, let's talk about that in our next segment. And what a blessing this is, listeners. And please, you know, be thinking about your life story and how it affected you and how it may have changed your outcome and the way you do things today. And I just want to encourage you once a month, listen to Next Steps for Seniors because you're going to hear these senior stories. You're listening to The Patriot, FM 101.5, AM 1400. We'll be back in just a few moments. This is Wendy Jones, and you're listening to The Patriot, FM 101.5, AM 1400. Welcome back to Next Steps for Seniors. We, Our topic today is senior stories, and we're here today with Paul, a good friend of mine, and he's telling a story, and it's just it's intriguing. I love it. From back in the day um, about his parents and how he found these letters during COVID of just the conversations between his, his mother and father. So we're kind of sitting on our edge of our seats, Paul, because we want to hear what you want to share about this letter. Well, we started out talking about uh, my parents um, having uh, now been reunited in uh, Iowa, where they were both born, my mother living on the East Coast and my father still living in Northwest Iowa. And so they started dating, and then my father was drafted into the Army. Uh, and I think I mentioned that he got drafted at what would have then been a, quite an old age, 28 years old. Mm-hmm. But anyway, he wound up in California because he could speak fluent Dutch. Uh, he was born in the United States, and the Army wanted interpreters for the eventual invasion of Dutch Malaysia. So they sent him to Stanford University to learn Malaysian, and he was there for quite some time. Um, His unit was the 13th, and what was interesting when I went through the letters was I found out that Walt Disney, of all people, had designed the insignia patch for this unit. And to describe it, um, there is a black cat um, standing on a broken mirror next to a spilled shaker of salt underneath a ladder, and, uh, it has an umbrella on the top with, of it. With an umbrella and the number 13 <laughs> hanging on it. So it's quite descriptive, and, and it was quite clever. They were making fun of all of the superstitions involved with, with the number 13. So I thought that was kind of fun. And, and and how ironic that it's Walt Disney that actually, the Walt Disney. The Walt Disney, yeah. <laughs> actually yeah. did this. So anyway, he, he, had, um, he had spent quite a bit of time uh, in California, and was there for um, uh, probably close to uh, three years, two or three years. Um, And, uh, again, the things that he sort of mentions in passing, we would find astounding today. For example, walking down the street, and uh, President Herbert Hoover, former President Herbert Hoover, walks right by him. No security guard, no nothing, just walking down the street like a casual 
vacationer. Imagine that. <laughs> yes. Right. <laughs> so, um, but he also uh, told stories that uh, really struck me. And as someone who was a history major and who loves reading the history of World War II, he um, was hitchhiking at one point. And he rode with a soldier who had just come back from the Aleutian Islands in Alaska from the Attu battle, A-T-T-U. Now, I, as soon as I saw that name, I knew exactly what this was. Uh, not too many people know that the Japanese actually did invade the United States. They occupied Attu Island in the Aleutians for quite a period of time. And, of course, the U.S. Uh, was not going to stand for that, and they sent a huge number of people there. The Japanese uh, never did get reinforcements or couldn't get reinforcements there in time. And um, so I'm going to read what my father wrote. I rode with a soldier for about 50 miles who was just back from the Aleutians, from the Attu battle. He was a fellow from New York who had run away from home four years ago after getting some girl into trouble. I assume pregnant. Mm -hmm. <laughs> he told blood-curling tales of the actual fighting on Attu. Things you've read in the paper here. For six weeks, he slept for only two hours, and that was being in danger of freezing to death or being blown to bits by Japanese artillery. He was so jittery, yet that he was so jittery yet that he looked around into the side every few minutes. I could say more, but it's only worse. So again, this battle um, uh, was when the Japanese invaded. Um, the um, what? Japanese Colonel Yamasaki, when he realized he was not going to get reinforcements, um, he organized a last-ditch last bonsai charge that broke through the American lines and shocked American rear echelon troops were forced to engage in hand-to-hand -hand fighting in order to defeat the Japanese. And all told, the Japanese lost 2,351 men killed in action, while the Americans suffered 549 killed. There were only 28 Japanese taken prisoner because, um, as you may know, the Japanese uh, thought surrendering was uh, dis a dishonor. So um, there were very, very few of those Japanese that were left when it was all done. But it was shocking to the troops, as my father described it, and this particular fellow he met was still in shock, apparently. So approximately what year... Do you think that was? That would have been, um, well, my father's letter was dated July of 1943. So, so interesting. So, so yeah, do you think that was publicized? I, I mean, I didn't even know that, to be honest. Not too many you. people know that. But, yeah, that's, it's, uh, it's in the history books. It's just not, a, not that well-known uh, uh, an event. Um, so. And for your dad to actually meet this gentleman who was there right. and can tell him stories right. of, of what it was like is, is so interesting. Yeah. So one of the other stories, uh, again, when my father was out there, um, because there were uh, people that he knew from back in Iowa or from Grand Rapids where he had spent some time in college, he wound up uh, going to... Um, a Reverend Helder's house for dinner because he got invited for dinner mm -hmm. uh, and that was a social thing. And this uh, story also really, really resonated with me. Again, sort of like Attu, when I heard this story, I, I knew exactly where it was placed in the history of World War II, having read a lot about it. Um, my father was invited to, to the Helder house for dinner 
Uh, and while he was there, uh, Reverend Helder was called downstairs to the door, and then he came back, and he took my father into another room, and he said that he had just received news that their son, Ronald Helder, uh, who was stationed in the Army Air Corps in North, North Africa, had been declared missing in action as of August 1, 1943. He did not want to tell Mrs. Helder because she had my father and other um, Army guests, Army soldiers, Mm -hmm. over for supper. So Dad left. My father left that meal um, after being very, very uncomfortable, realizing the implications of his leaving. Um, I then looked up in... On, in the history books, the, the exact dates. So there was something called Operation Tidal Wave, and it involved an air attack by the United States Army Air Force, and they all left from Libya and flew across the Mediterranean to, do, uh, to bomb the oil fields in Ploesti, Romania. And this strategic bombing mission was part of the uh, oil campaign to cripple uh, Germany's ability to pr- uh, process petroleum-based fuel. That was launched on August 1, and uh, it was uh, fairly, uh, well, I would, I would say it's probably one of the worst um, losses, personnel losses uh, mm-hmm. in the war because the United States Air Force lost 53 aircraft and 660 air crewmen on one day, oh. and it became known as Bloody Sunday. So Ronald Helder was one of those 660 airmen. Um, the, the crazy thing is that Mrs. Helder had written down on the calendar on August one that she had felt something had happened to her son, Ronald. This date when my father visited was 16 days later, it was over two weeks later. And that was the date that Mr. And Mrs. Helder got news that their son, Ronald, uh, was missing in action. And indeed, not only was he missing in action, he did die. That story is unbelievable. I I don't even have words. Oh my yeah. goodness! Yeah. And that's how I mean. That's how the Holy Spirit works, though, because that was probably the day he went to be in heaven. And and his mom and it, you know them being you know pastors or a reverend you know probably were very spiritual in nature and truly felt like their son is in another place. Right. Right, and then to have that confirmation, but your dad was right there when the news came. Yeah. Wow, yeah, wow! It just gives you a whole different level of respect for those who sacrifice for our country. Yeah, doesn't it? Well, when Tom Brokaw called them the greatest generation, Man. yeah, they were truly yeah. the greatest generation. Yeah, yeah. So your dad served for how long in the army? So he was. I'm going to not know the date he got inducted, but he was in the army uh, pretty early on in the war, and he was uh, he was in the service uh, through the end of the war in Europe. And so, from this point, my father uh, was, as I said, um, learning Malaysian because he was going to be an interpreter uh, for the eventual invasion of Dutch Malaysia, and he could speak Dutch fluently. Um, In late 1944, 
And again, there's a gap in the letters here of, of almost two years, so I don't know exactly what my father was doing or what was happening during that period of time. But it does pick up again uh, late 1944. Okay, okay. And we're going to move into this next segment about why he had to learn both languages and how interesting that all is in our next segment. You're listening to The Patriot, FM 101.5, AM 1400, and we'll be back in just a moment. This is Wendy Jones, and you're listening to The Patriot, FM 101.5, AM 1400. Our topic today is Senior Stories. And listeners, this has been such an engaging couple segments, and I'm so excited to have Paul with me here today because these are the things, you know, during COVID, if you're just if you're just tuning in, Paul found some letters after his mom had passed when he was cleaning out uh, her house and all the things that, and some letters between her mom, his mom and, and her and his dad. And it's fascinating to me that we're learning so much about history right now, right here because of these letters. And this is why we do what we do, right? We pay it forward and we want to teach the next generation and the next generation. And, you know, we have something on us right now that we need to pour into our kids. And that's what your dad did without even knowing it. And I'm sure you've shared these with your sons um, because this is his, you know, this is his heritage. So share with us some of the other letters that are just fascinating. Well, again, we had talked about the fact that my father uh, originally had been inducted into the Army and then was uh, sent to um, California to learn Malaysian because he spoke Dutch and they needed interpreters for the war that they thought would eventually go come to uh, Dutch Malaysia. Um, During the late months of 1944, in fact, in December of 1944, everyone's heard of the Battle of the Bulge. And there was a huge German counteroffensive, which I think uh, thoroughly frightened a lot of the generals and and staff uh, who were in the U.S. Army. And so my father was yanked out of his unit in California and sent along with his battalion, the 86th, to Europe uh, to probably reinforce what was going on there because uh, the U.S., I think, thought that uh, they needed more troops. So my father wound up. Um, actually finally uh, sailing and landing at Le Havre, France in March of 1945. And there were pictures of Le Havre, which had been completely bombed. Um, My father writes, The peaceful country suggests little of past or present warfare. Only the cities and villages show signs of utter ruin and devastation. I have seen what a city like Le Havre can look like after a bombing. It leaves an impression one does not easily forget. We can certainly be thankful that none of our cities in the U.S. have ever been touched by bombs. One wonders what Berlin would be like after such concentrated bombing and what we hope Tokyo will soon be like, such as war. So um, my father now was uh, with the 86th uh, traveling uh, into Europe and ultimately uh, went uh, with them uh, and uh, went to to Salzburg and uh, Munich. And um, then uh, his unit, uh, the 86, uh, actually uh, came in uh, to heavy um, fighting in the Ruhr pocket. Uh, The Germans uh, uh, there were uh, fairly concentrated. So my father wrote about that, although my father had a position that uh, didn't expose him to uh, front line combat. Right, right. So he was fortunate uh, in that in that sense. Um, 
but he talks about meeting uh, German civilians, uh, and sometimes he, even though Dutch is not German, he understood enough German that he could serve as an interpreter in, in that uh, sense. Um, so he wrote to my mother that some of the uh, German civilians aroused his sympathy, uh, and sincerely so, but um, others uh, uh, are uh, not not like that, and there are, there are um, uh, a lot of people that he uh, felt uh, uh, were still fairly uh, antagonistic towards the U.S. troops. So, What I find interesting is your father clearly, I mean, I've got to believe it was hard to find someone who could speak that many languages. Multilingual, bilingual, it's very difficult to find. And it is. Back yeah. in that day, in the yeah. 40s, and yeah. he could speak, what, four languages, well, he English? Speak, well, English, Dutch, uh, probably, uh, uh, well, free, and so, a free, little bit free, of German. <laughs> Frisian, which is a, actually a different dialect, and then a bit of German as well. So, yeah. That's just remarkable to yeah. me. I'm lucky to get uno, dos, tres, and then my English language going. So that's impressive. Um, My father uh, was a very conservative person and and a a devout Christian. And um, he actually got into a lot of arguments and and got very upset at what he saw in Army life. Because, of course, it's a bunch of guys together and there was... Didn't line up with his Christian values, I'm sure. Probably not. And uh, so he wrote... uh, for example, uh, that uh, basically uh, all these guys want to do is uh, drink and complain about the officers So <laughs> when they got the chance. But my father also, uh, for someone who grew up in northwest Iowa and who was not exposed to a broad culture before this, um, was was a uh, just a very interesting and, and kind person. Um, he wrote to my mother uh, uh, in February of 1945, uh, Last night I got into quite a discussion here on the Negro problem in this country. The weak arguments put up by a few of the boys included a sergeant who said it didn't amount to a hill of beans, the usual, usual southern view. I guess we got rather heated about it until one of the more intelligent boys said to stop the argument since we wouldn't get anywhere. So my father actually um, wrote letters about race relations to my mother quite a bit. One, one time my mother had one of her friends say something disparaging and my father counseled her on uh, on that. So uh, I, th- I found that was pretty interesting. That's very interesting. And this was in the 40s. So, you know, absolutely. And God bless him for standing up and, you know, and counseling her on how to respond to and these certainly. situations. Yeah. We all need, we still yeah. are learning this, right? Right. right. So, Again, uh, my father's traveling uh, towards Berlin at this time. Uh, actually, came very close to Berksgarden. I'm going to pronounce that wrong. Okay. Which is the eagle's nest where Hitler, way up in uh, Ooh, in the mountains, there yes. a be- beautiful spot. But he came very close uh, close there. And then, in April uh, of 1945, uh, my father was informed, and as were every all the troops, uh, that President Roosevelt had died, and um, he probably talks about that day. He did. He said, today I read in the Stars and Stripes, and there was plenty on the president's death. I don't know of any man more affected by hearing of his death than I have been. Reading about him tonight, a lump came into my throat. He meant so much for our country, and especially now. I know I should trust our God to see us through, even without the help of this one man, but I consider him capable of handling some of the great problems, considered only him capable of handling some of the great problems ahead. 
So this is uh, very close to the end of the war. Uh, on April 16, the Battle of the Ruhr Pocket ended, and then the 86th Division began to move southeast on their way to Salzburg, Austria. And they, uh, they kept on going until the, the war ended there in Europe. Um, my, my father uh, was also um, very, very romantic with my mother. So it was interesting to read the letters and to see, you know, how frank and uh, uh, open he was yeah. and uh-huh. transparent he was. And I'm sure uh, he would have been blushing, I think, to know that his, his children <laughs> eventually were going to read these letters. And on the radio. No, and, on the, <laughs> and on the radio. Well, he's, I won't read the, I won't read the mushy parts, but he, <laughs> he, was, uh, he was constantly telling my mother how much he loved her and how much he missed her and and uh, especially uh, on their anniversaries, uh, because they had gotten married before he had had left for Europe. So he got married. They spent a uh, three-day uh, honeymoon in, in a in a terrible rundown uh, hotel because there was no housing or rooms anywhere in the country for servicemen who were all, all over the place. So, but anyway, he's married now, but he's still uh, not with uh, the one woman he's loved mm-hmm. the most in his life. Wow. Isn't that so interesting? I mean, there's, it's endearing, I, I think is the word, you know, the passion, you see passion in letters and there is a way that you can articulate because you can actually think about what you want to say versus how we do it nowadays. I mean, nowadays, sometimes these kids, they don't even, they're not even talking to each other verbally. They're in the same room and they're texting each other. Yes, yes. It just doesn't make any yeah. sense to me whatsoever. And then you've got this sweet man endearingly articulating his love in a letter to his to his yeah. wife. Yeah, he wrote uh, on their anniversary uh, in 1945. This sounds very formal to anyone who might read it, but it means a lot to me. It means everything to me, knowing that you are mine forever. There's nothing that thrills me more than this, darling. I feel this anew today when I received your letter and also, also the picture. What a couple, I said to myself. And my heart said, what lovers. Truly, I can say I never expected to be half so happily married as I am. Oh, that's so sweet. That is just sweet. And at this point, he's probably like 30. Close to I mean, to he, it. he was married for a couple of years. Yes. Wow. Yes. So we have one segment left. I want you to get in a little bit, if we can, in the last segment about their relationship. Because it sounds like... It was pretty special. It was. <laughs> it's so cool. And, you know, how you pass that on to the generations behind you, because I know you have some sons. Because this is, you know, these are stories. And listeners, this is why we're doing this segment today, because, I mean, we're all learning a lot about history, number one. And those of you who were either in the world war uh, or, you know, served our country. I'm sure you're finding this fascinating because there are many things we didn't know about that this gentleman lived. So stay tuned. We're going to hear more. You're listening to The Patriot, FM 101.5, AM 1400. This is Wendy Jones, and you're listening to The Patriot, FM 101.5, AM 1400. Welcome back. Our topic today, Senior Stories. And it has just been such a fascinating three segments, having Paul with us today, telling stories about when he found all of these letters when his, after his mother had passed. 
um, of, and it's just, it's interesting. It's interesting. It's, I'm so intrigued and listeners, I'm sure you're enjoying this as much. This is better than going to the movies. I'm just not going to lie. This is like the real life stuff. So share with us a little bit more about their relationship and, you know, his journey as it, as it, as it moved along in time. Well, so my, as my, as I mentioned, my father wrote to my mother almost every day while he was in the service and, uh, he had initially been in Europe. Uh, and was you know, with the 86th uh, Division, which uh, was there at the end of the war. And then he was shipped from there to uh, back to California and then put on a boat and sent to the Philippines because he initially had been put into the Army to serve as an interpreter. He could speak fluent Dutch. Uh, he was born in the United States, and he had learned Malaysian uh, at Stanford while in the Army. So... Uh, the 86 was one of the very few groups of uh, servicemen who were in both theaters of the war. And he wasn't too happy about the fact that he was now getting shipped out, but he did get shipped out. Um, but as I said, he griped about army life, didn't like it, was very frustrated at times. And at one point uh, at the end of a two paragraph gripe, he wrote, just as I was finishing this letter, I knew I'd forgotten something. I wanted to say, most of all, this is our day. What a day for me. Thank you, lover, for a wonderful wife that you've been to me. I could never have asked for better. Lo better. I love, love, love you. So those kind of sentiments were expressed over and over and over again. So sweet and so romantic and appreciative. Yes. Like he recognizes I have a good relationship and I'm thankful for it. Definitely. Definitely. So he was in uh, Manila, stationed there, and uh, the war in Japan, uh, with Japan, had uh, concluded, but the troops remained there. And one of the problems, logistical problems, for the U.S. government was, I think initially they didn't know how many troops it would take to make sure that the Japanese remained subdued. Well, they were very subdued. Once they stopped fighting, they were very passive, and these troops had nothing to do. And there were huge numbers of them. And my father wrote to my mother about 4,000 of these troops in Manila rioting and causing quite a bit of damage. And uh, so one of the things that now President Truman wanted to do was basically throw them all in prison. All 4,000 of the rioters, he felt like they were mutinying and uh, should go to jail. And um, Truman deferred the decision to General Eisenhower. General Eisenhower said, no, I'm going to let every major or com company commander decide what to do with the individual soldiers who did participate. And my father, uh, who was a great admirer of FDR, was not a great admirer of Harry Truman. And in response to the decision of General Eisenhower, my father wrote in a letter to my mother, Eisenhower for president. Little did he know that his wishes would come true not a few it? years later. Right? Just a few short years later. So one of the things that the troops were doing, um, because their letters were censored, you had uh, censors looking at every letter that went to and from uh, the states. One of the things the troops did to uh, get around the censors was to write things on the envelopes that were mailed to the states. And I have uh, a, more than one envelope that my father sent and included with the uh, uh, address for my mother was on the left side, no boats, no votes. So basically that was my father's protests to let my mother know what was going on. 
Which is very clear because if they're basically saying, if you're not going to help us get out of where we are, we're not going to vote for you. So another story that was not revealed in these letters, but um, which I was aware of having talked to my father-in-law, my my wife's father, he was, uh, he enlisted uh, in the Navy uh, way at the end of the war and got shipped to San Francisco and uh, all of the... uh, Seamen who were going to go out were going to get assigned to a ship. And so they all lined up and count off. One, two, one, two, one, two. Okay, all of you ones, you're on the USS Pensacola, which is where my father-in-law went. All of the twos, you're on the USS Indianapolis. The USS Indianapolis was carrying uh, an atomic bomb to be used uh, on Japan. The USS Indianapolis, after it delivered that bomb, was torpedoed by the Japanese and sank. And there's a famous book called In Harm's Way about all of these sailors who were in the water and no one knew that the ship had been sunk because of communication issues with the Navy. And um, thousands of these sailors uh, were eaten by sharks. And so my father-in-law would have been, I I wouldn't have been married to my wife probably. You wouldn't even be here. Yeah. uh, Yeah. But my father-in-law, but for the lottery of one, two, one, two would have been on that ship and in the water. And who knows whether he would have survived. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. But these are the types of things when you talk about your life and you talk about things that have happened one way or another, you can't make this stuff up. No, it's, it's kind of an amazing story uh, on that level that he, he was not there. So, uh, and uh, he, told the story and just was shaking his head. He couldn't believe his, his good fortune to not, to not have been on that, on the USS Indianapolis. So, wow. So we've got five minutes, actually four minutes left in our program. And if you're just tuning in listeners, my friend, Paul Van Tol, which is, he was a fascinating man in and of itself, but found these letters between his mom and dad. And we're sharing so much of history today and really why he's even here today because, you know, and his wife, because of all the different things that took place throughout their lifetimes. And now that he's passing on to his boys. So in closing, we got, you know, a few minutes left. What, what's kind of your takeaway? Is there one more letter you want to read to us? I I don't have one more letter, but again, the, the, the title that I gave to this, because I wound up with, I I just summarized the letters. I didn't transcribe them. I just Mm -hmm. summarized whatever I found to be interesting. Uh, and I wound up with some 80 pages of summaries because this was six or 700 letters. This was not just a small over the group course of, of five well, years you over think? the course of five years, at least. Yes. So, but I talked to my brothers and said, you know, I, I should put a title on this, I guess. And so the title we came up with was uh, love everlasting, the story of Hubert Neville and Van Tool. And, um, and in, um, their, honor, we actually set up a scholarship fund uh, at uh, my father's a high school teacher in Grand Rapids, and we set up a minority scholarship fund in their name. So that oh. funds uh, one, one child's education every year. Phenomenal. To, yeah, to honor them. I thought that was something that would be important to them. And here we are paying it forward. We are, hopefully. <laughs> this is exactly, listeners, what we're supposed to do in life, right? He took a situation in an honor of his father who has done so much for our country. Let me just add on top of the family and everybody else. And now you're paying it forward to help a student every year. God bless you guys. Thank you. That's amazing. And so 
your brothers are just as intrigued, I'm assuming, with all the letters. Were you really the point focus on everything? Because probably your history design, you know. Yeah, as I said, I was a history major. Yeah. Uh, so I, I've always loved history. I, I always read a lot of history, but uh, I was the one that went through the letters because I somehow wound up with a box of like, you know, you divide your parents' stuff. Up. Who wants this? Who wants that? And that kind of intrigued me. So I think, as I uh, indicated at the start, uh, when I started going through the letters, uh, I kind of didn't see anything. But ultimately, when I started summarizing them and putting them in chronological order, the complete picture came together and the history of uh, these two people who somehow met and got married and had a love that lasted for a long time. So your takeaway from their from their marriage is what? My takeaway is that they loved each other despite being polar dip, dip, different people. My mother was outgoing, outrageous. My father was the, one of the quietest people you would ever want to meet. And they made their marriage work and uh, loved, loved each other and definitely told that uh, to each other on a constant uh, and everlasting basis. And as I said, my mother was a widow for 33 years, but celebrated her anniversary uh, every year, even after my father died. That's amazing. There's something about having a soulmate. And that's exactly what they had, which is so sweet. So listeners, my takeaway, if you love somebody, tell them that you love them today. Don't wait. What are we waiting for? Life is short and you don't know what you're going to be able to do to affect someone else's life. So like they're doing, they started a scholarship fund, which I love, by the way. Thank you for doing that for, for students. But there are ways that we can pay it forward, experiences that we've had in our lives that we can give back. Um, what I'm doing, because I was so into my grandparents and my great-grandparents, I was very blessed. I started this foundation to help seniors because that's my passion. But whatever your passion is, do something. Do something to help somebody else. You're listening to The Patriot, FM 101.5, AM 1400. Have a blessed day. You've been listening to this week's edition of Next Steps for Seniors with your host, Wendy Jones. You can reach Wendy with any questions you have at area 248-651-5010. That's 248-651-5010. Join us again next week as Wendy provides more information and resources for those important next steps for your elderly parent or loved one. The preceding program was sponsored by Next Steps for Seniors Foundation. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.